How are you doing, Dr. Levering? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Having a, having a nice Shrove Tuesday before Lent starts tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so today, everybody, we're going to be going over a bit about uh, Catholic biblical interpretation, kind of going into detail, and then how using using Protestant biblical interpretation as a foil, how exactly we differ in our in our more mystical readings of Scripture, which are based in the in the literal sense. So, to to start off, will you? Will you give us a bit of an intro into uh, into what exactly the literal sense is, how that how that interacts with um, with with a more mystical spiritual the spiritual sense, and, and and how that all happens? Yeah, that's that's a good question. There, um, Thomas, I've always um, valued the literal sense, and so um, as you probably know, um, during the um, the period, the so-called neo-scholastic period, there was a, a very much a strong concern um, among many neo-scholastics about um, the uh, the turn by the race or small figures, their turn to the um, spiritual senses. There was actually um, you can find that um, in Humanae Generis. There's real concern that um, the literal sense is going to be lost and that the spiritual sense. Um, which the race or small had been very strongly advocating would uh, take over. And so you find this also in Thomas Aquinas' commentaries that he, um, he, he uses what he calls, he refers to the mystical sense, but um, he doesn't really use it that, I mean, it's not, not half as frequent as, as you might think. You know, he's very much um, interested in the literal sense. Now, the literal sense for a medieval commentator uh, means something quite different from um, the literal sense today. Today, the literal sense, um, the purpose of the literal sense is to understand the author's um, own context and what the author, the human author, you know, was trying to say. You know, you understand that through um, learning about Second Temple Judaism or through learning about all the different um, related uh, texts from the ancient Near East that are the Jewish texts and also um, also, some non non Jewish texts from that um, that in the ancient Near East, and so you study these you study these texts and you begin to gain some sense of the context. You know, you do archaeology and all that stuff, and you gain some sense of the context sort of behind the text, and then then you're able to understand the literal sense of the of the scriptures. So that's the purpose today of understanding the literal sense. But whereas um, Thomas Aquinas, um, he he valued he valued what he knew of the historical background and he did not really have that uh, not extensive recourse to the mystical sense but nonetheless um his literal sense would be much broader in the, um so when he's reading the book of isaiah for example you'll find um that he um his literal sense is that isaiah knows about christ um already knows sort of the trinitarian mysteries but Keep in mind, though, that Aquinas will often um, surprise you. So in, the, in his commentary on Isaiah, you're, you think he's going to do a Christological sense. You think he's going to begin talking Christologically. But instead, he tries. He talks about what the Jews at the time um, would have been thinking. So my, my view, honestly, is that Aquinas would not have a problem with um, contemporary historical critical scholarship. I don't think he would have a problem with it. And um, I think 
that therefore he could benefit, he would benefit from um, the work that Protestant biblical scholars have done. And there's some really great ones, you know, of course, uh, they, all the smart Protestants, most of the smart Protestants go into scripture study. And a lot of them are, a lot of them obviously are hugely talented. And so you find a number of um, evangelical Protestants, um, Richard Baucom, you know, uh, they're essentially evangelical Anglicans or reformed, reformed Anglicans, a lot of them. Anyway, they, they do a great job. Okay, so what was, so you mentioned uh, the Thomistic sort of uh, opposition to Ressourcement and it's on a biblical level. I haven't, I haven't heard about this, this fight that went on when it came to the interpretation of scripture. Could you go into that a bit more, how there was that uh, opposition yeah, yeah, you can see it in human generous. I mean, remember the um, it's important. Uh, Saint Thomas teaches that that when you're arguing dogma, when you're arguing doctrine, sacred doctrina, you um, employ the literal sense. You know, and and uh, he says that doesn't mean you can't be enriched by the um, the spiritual sense, but when you're when you're um, teaching doctrine, sacred doctrina, you um, you rely upon the literal sense not not the spiritual senses so um that now there was a concern upon the members of of the race for small movement that this um, was overly limiting and it resulted also in some um, biblical literalism you remember um that there was some you know some i mean there'd be quite early in the early in 20th century you get the questions um from the pontifical biblical commission and whatnot you know about um this this question of historicity or that question and the, a very strict line would be taken on absolute absolute historicity and so there was concern among the racial small people that this was this was co- going to cause scandal because um it wasn't going to be defensible historically and so then they they said that look scripture is much broader and they brought in origin you know and origin of course is a master of of the spiritual sense and and so you know i mean there's a number of I could go into a number of different cases where this is applicable, but um, the, anyway, the bottom line though is that is that in fact um, Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, finds a lot of typology. Even the literal sense, where the literal sense of the New Testament is filled with typology, and sometimes people think of typology as simply a, a spiritual sense, but it's it's not. It's, it's a literal sense. It's present in the literal sense, tremendous amount of typology. So if you want to know well, what is typology, well, it's like Christ is the new Adam. That's a, that's a typological identification of Christ. He's also identified as a new, new, Matt, um, new Moses and the new Joshua, you know, the new David. The new David is the Messiah, you know, so there's nothing more literal sense than that. But, but anyway, the point is that there's tons of typology in the, and it turns out there's a bunch of typology in the Old Testament as well. And of course, the prophets are filled with um, types, you know. But of course, the New Testament. Um, think of the Book of Revelation, all the typology there, and um, think of the typology of um, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, there um, in Revelation uh, 11 to 12, and so on. So there's all sorts of typology. So Aquinas is very cognizant of this typology, and and that's a real um, link between um, Thomistic exegesis and race or small. Um, exegesis. Okay, so you you mentioned that uh, that Saint Thomas, and this this was actually quite a surprise for me when I read it that 
He talks about it, I think, in uh, in his commentary on the sentences, first beginning of the first book, in the introductory uh, section. He talks about how the spiritual sense cannot be used for the establishment of doctrine. But how can we as Catholics hold that when things like the Assumption of Our Lady are only found in the in an allegorical sense? In, for example, the Psalms. Well, well that's a good. I mean. Uh, I think again here. Here, one one thing is I was I was emphasizing that um, typology is present, you know, in the um, literal sense of the New Testament, and so so I think that in terms of like the um, of assumption of of um, Mary, um, you can find uh, in the literal sense you can find typological uh, references. Um, I've pointed to a Revelation. 11 to 12 and of course that's that's prepared for you know by john 2 and 19 you know and so on so there's to my mind there's some um typological uh presence of mary's bodily assumption in the literal sense of of the um of the text there but on the other hand you have to you have to be attuned to reading typologically though you know and so so in order to find this typology in literal sense and to be and to be able to identify it as Mary's bodily assumption, you're going to you're going to need to be a typological reader. You're going to need to be someone who looks for types. And so you're going to have to be like St. Paul, who, when he's reading the Old Testament, is looking for um, typological connections. You're going to have to read like a, like um, the early Christians read. They, they read with um, types in mind, typology. And the first Christians are the ones who are the apostles, you know, of course, and they're reading um, the, the Old Testament in a very typological way uh, because that's how they knew how to read scripture. And that's a, um, a very rich, it's a true way to read scripture. It's, it's true. So my, my, I think we can bridge um, St. Thomas Aquinas and the Racers Mall here. We can bring them together. I don't think, I don't think they're saying that much different, but the, because there is typology in the literal sense. But but the point though is that there was some overemphasis on the literal sense and some narrowing of the literal sense, in my opinion, that you do find in um, the kind of the neo some of the neo scholastics. You know, um, again, some people are too critical, far too critical of the neo scholastics. Uh, but they. But sometimes there was a bit of a narrowing in some of them. And, and so the racer's model was just reminding folks, hey, hey, we have this typology in the spiritual sense. These are very valuable. Um, let's, let's, not, not, let's not lose this part of the patristic inheritance. And the, this part of the patristic inheritance belonged to the medievals as well. So I think all, all is well in the end. But unfortunately, um, unfortunately, after the council, though, you after the council, both the Neoscholastic and the Racer's Mall essentially collapsed. And what you got instead was a very thin gruel, you know, from Catholic biblical scholars. Although um, I don't want to denigrate people like um, uh, Joseph Fitzmaier, Raymond Brown. There's many, many things to discover and learn from these great um, minds. But I do want to say, though, that um, that they were, they were not not working with all the tools, you know. That's for sure. 
Okay, so when it comes so a recent question that is that has been coming up, and I'm sure this comes up all the time, is there was a debate on young earth creationism that happened on Pines of Aquinas. And people have been talking back and forth about how we are to read the first eleven chapters of Genesis. So how um, what what is a proper Thomistic reading of of the first eleven chapters of Genesis? What would be the literal sense of that passage, and how would we how would both sides argue on this on this issue? Oh well, in this case, I I do I talk about uh, this somewhat in my engaging the doctrine of creation, a book that I wrote. But, um, you know, I, the thing about it is, though, is that Aquinas has a wonderful passage in his De Potentia. But unfortunately, right now, I don't, I don't have that book. This is my living room. I, I don't have that with me. But um, it's a wonderful passage on, on how Christians ought to handle um, biblical uh, texts in relation to uh, natural science and, and other, other type of things like that. And Aquinas is building upon um, what Augustine says in his confessions. And in his confessions, remember, he's um, debating with Faustus. And so you remember the um, Manichaeans were making some extremely ridiculous claims about that could be could be tested by natural science of the day. You know, and um, and they the, the, the natural science of Augustine's time was not so bad as you might think, not at all. You know, it's not that bad. It's they knew some stuff. Um, now we we know a lot more, but but they knew a lot already. Um, so anyway, anyway, Faustus was embarrassing himself, you know, with this ridiculous um, scientific claims that could be shown to be false. And Augustine warns very strongly against this. Augustine says, um, Augustine says, don't do this. You know, he's talking to his Christians, to Christians. He says, "Don't do it like this. Don't don't embarrass yourselves um, talking ignorantly about matters um, that pertain to natural science." So uh, Aquinas picks that up in the in the De Potentia. Aquinas has a, a lengthy discussion of this, and he um, and just to bring it back to to the whole issue of Genesis one. I mean, there's there's no way that Aquinas would be a young Earth creationist. I mean, that that would be completely. Um, not not at all anything that Aquinas would would do you know why why would he you know it, so the, these these texts um you know they describe and do so truly they describe the fact that the, that God created the world that God created um you know the, all, all the things we see around us that God is creator that God gave order you know God gave beauty God gave goodness and that there was a um, God, God created man and woman in His image. Um, that you know the rational, the rational human being. You know they describe all these things, and then they describe the fall. So these things are true, you know. But but the whole idea of young Earth creationism is not true. Um, there's no need to hold it. You know now, now if all of a sudden some sort of scientific evidence would emerge. But it, it's not even fitting, you know. Even even um, Augustine, even the, the remember the church fathers would never have bought into this kind of young earth creationism. No way, not not in the way it's put now. Um, now they were they were open, you know. It's um they didn't they didn't you know like how 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 old the world is or how vast the cosmos is. These were questions that that they um you know that they were open on. 
and and of course we can be today, but but the evidence is so much against young earth creationism, and, and there's no need for it at at all. <laughs> that's that's my would be what I think Aquinas would say, and certainly what I what I have said. Okay, so um, so at, th at this point, I think the the young earth creationist would respond, uh, thinking about. The first chapters in Genesis that it seems like that is the the literal sense, especially with the genealogies and, and, and such like that. So how would that how would that not be the the literal sense of of those passages? Well, the genealogies, or you're asking about, um, you know, sort of like Genesis one through eleven. Like if you add up the genealogies and then count back. Then it's X number of years that that you're that, that you have. Oh yeah, okay. So like the the genealogies. Um, well, you know, if you, I mean, if you're, I, I see what you're. I think I see what you're trying to say is that you, what you're saying is that that the genre, um, again, the way the Catholic would think about this would be to bring in the whole issue of genre, which Aquinas Aquinas knew about, you know, and so. You're, you're saying that for the young earth creationists, um, they're going to say that the genre of Genesis uh, 1 to 11, you know, is um, is kind of historiography, you know, kind of what we think of as, as historiography. And they're going to say, well, look, it says here, you know, in the same way that we would like, we would point to a biography of Napoleon and say, look, he's descended from, you know, um, there's these were his parents, these were his grandparents, and so on. Essentially, what the young Earth creationists have done is they've um, they haven't understood the genre of the t of the actual text, and they know not they're ignorant really of um, of ancient uh, forms of writing. That's that's the problem. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I guess what you do is like give them Brant Petrie and John Bergsma's book. You know, let let them see what Brant, Brant and John say about about the Old Testament and about the Genesis one to eleven. And you know what? And then whatever. I mean, it's um. But there's essentially the the bottom line though is that um, the young Earth creationists, as I, as I see it, um, have shown themselves to be ignorant of the genres in which um, you know this uh, ancient writing was, what they were employing. Mm -hmm. You know, so they they just they think they're reading it as modern historiography. <laughs> you know, it's it's definitely not that. You know, okay. so it's not it's not like reading biography of Napoleon and trying to and see well here are his parents there his grandparents and so on. That's it's not what that's not what it's doing. Okay, that, that makes sense. So when it comes to uh, how a Catholic reads Scripture, could you go over um, practices like Lectio Divina and, and and things like that? How 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 do um, in in the day to day life of building this this habit um, and, and speaking in the technical sense of habit of of uh, being a being a uh, biblical interpreter of of reading scripture well how is how is that ha habit built up through uh, frequent reading well i i wonder i mean i don't well i never claim to be an expert at anything so i i don't now what how i can just tell you how um i do in my own life and and i hope it's a I hope it's an answer. Um, you know, my own life, I just I read with my wife one chapter of the Bible per day, so we just read it at night. You know, now I read I read the Bible for my own work, of course, <laughs> and and I 
I try to write about the Holy Scripture as much as I can um, because I love Scripture. But um, in my in my life of prayer, you know, then I I read one chapter a day, and we just read read through the whole Bible. So it takes us about three years. Um, now I know that's kind of slow, but nonetheless, that's that's what it is. It's about uh, <clears throat> about three years we can um, read through the whole Bible. But but what I find though is that um, it, you know to do it the way we're doing it, um, it really does take some background. Because my, my wife, she told me that she read through the whole Bible with me like three times and, and just didn't remember or didn't really connect the dots. It's hard to, you have to have some background, some kind of basic uh, framework, you know. But what what I do though, um, later on my wife then took a course on scripture, took a course, um, you know, uh, a, um, I forget, offered by the parish or whatever, but it just gave her enough background to be able to connect dots, remember all the things, and it made reading scripture much more powerful for her. And so um, that was important. But but then what I do is I I take that constant um, constant immersion in scripture. But then um, you know then at mass, um, at daily mass, of course you're you're right there with the scriptures, and so you know you're caught up into the life of Christ, um, both through the um, but but through this, everything about the mass is is like being caught up in the life of Christ, but of course the readings um, get you right into it um, in different ways, and so that's a profoundly scriptural uh, experience of prayer for me is is the mass. So so those are the two things um, that that I do daily um, to try to live within scripture, you know, and to. Um, you know, become a part of God's people, a part of God's some um, scriptural people, a part of God's apostolic people, a part of God's Israel. A, a part of God's Israel is is what I want to be. I want to be a part of His um, Israel, the Israel that's been reconfigured by the Messiah. You know, the Lord, uh, the one who um, reveals absolute mercy, absolute love, um, and the triune life of of, of joy. Um, that's I want to be part of that people. So as as a uh, as a theologian, um, how how does scripture play into the life of a theologian? Because often we think about those those terrible scholastics. They were just only reading Aristotle and just commenting on Aristotle and never they they must have never read the Bible, right? Saint Thomas <laughs> never read the Bible. He only read Aristotle. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Now, now Saint Thomas Saint Thomas Aquinas read a lot of Aristotle. <laughs> that's true, but. Um, but he did. I mean, he was, a, of course, a master of the sacred page, and he lectured on, um, you know, his wonderful commentary on Isaiah, um, commentary on Jeremiah. Although, although, of course, um, some scholars debate whether that one is uh, um, really his. I, I think it is. Um, and then there's there's so many others. Commentary on the whole, all of Paul's epistles, including including Hebrews, of course. Um, and then commentary on John commentary on Matthew, commentary on Psalms, and there's others. The main point is, yeah, Aquinas, he, he loved scripture. What he was doing with his commentaries, you know, was he was taking the um, patristic wisdom. I mean, he would have these um, patristic commentaries, and then he would have other medieval commentaries, and he would have um, also, also with him, he had sort of a, not a, he had a way of, um, I forget what these things are called, um, where it's essentially like you can 
you can um, look up, if you look up one word, it shows you places where that word appears in other scriptural verses. So he was able then to draw a lot of connections very quickly, you know, between um, scriptural passages all across the Bible. He read very canonically. Um, I guess that's how you describe it. Um, but he also does so much deeply in tune with the patristic um, reading of scripture and therefore very dogmatically. But, you know, he was uh, he was a great reader of scripture for sure. Um, and so was Bonaventure. You know, now I just found I just found Bonaventure's commentary on Luke um, available for very cheap. You know, so it's there. The um, I forget which press, but it's it's not on Amazon, really. It's they're just selling it directly from the press. And so you, anyway, people ought to get that. You know, Bonaventure's commentary on Luke. That's that's a real treasure. So how would how would St. Thomas really differ or object to how modern Protestants or even modern Catholics uh, approach the text? Is, is there is there any ways in which he would uh, he would differ strongly on? Well, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas was a fairly serene person. <laughs> Keep that in mind. You know, he was not, um, he was not, I often, man, or that when you, when you kind of, if you look on like, um, like a blog or a, um, you know, site where they're having a giant argument, a blog, an intense argument, and they kind of say, well, they, they appeal, appeal to St. Thomas Aquinas or appeal to the neoscholastics. I just want to remind you, I really strongly emphasize that St. Thomas Aquinas was a very serene man, you know, not not one who was like um, always getting into a giant skirmish of that kind. Or, you know, he was a contemplative. You know, he was a man. Of, he was a man who desired wisdom. You know, and the neoclassics were like that too. They were they were fairly devoted to the church, fairly devoted to the pope, um, because of the pope. Um, you know, because of his role within the church. And so on, they were profoundly devoted to Christ. And, but they were, very, they often were very serene. There was a certain serenity to many, to many of them because they were um, seekers of wisdom. Anyway, the, the point is that, so I'm not so sure, I'm not sure that Aquinas would get into um, big fights with the Protestants, but, but I do think he would differ on, on, on certain matters. And so, you know, now the problem though, is that you have to kind of go go interpreter by interpreter, you know, so there's going to be differences, um, for example, in understanding the church, those are going to be um, differences, differences in understanding, um, you know, this or that, it'll, it'll be interpreter from, it'll, the differences will, themselves will differ with each interpreter, because you're having inter interpreters who are Protestants, um, and that they, they understand that in a reformed way, or maybe they are Lutherans, or maybe they are Anglicans. You know, um, they, you can also, I mean, there's just such a wide variety. So let's answer your question like in a, in a sort of a, a baseline way though, that Aquinas would be reading much more carefully with the fathers and therefore with the dogmatic tradition. You know, that would be, that would be the bottom line is he'd be reading with the dogmatic tradition and with the fathers always reading with the fathers. So he had a much more care and love for the church fathers um, than you'll find in contemporary biblical scholarship because contemporary biblical scholarship is doing something different. You know, they're trying to understand the text in its original context. 
Aquinas is understanding the um, the biblical text in terms of its reception, um, spirit guided reception, you know, um, by the fathers. That's that's really crucial. So um, that's again, again, we can bring together um, to mystic and race or small um, paths of thinking because the fathers are just as important for Thomas Aquinas as they are for race or small. And of course, unfortunately, um, uh, unfortunately, so the, the church fathers, though, it's difficult. It's difficult to read all the all the you have to buy a lot. You have to buy a lot of books and read a lot of stuff. <laughs> So, so then if you read Aquinas' commentaries, um, that can give you access to the church fathers. But, but it is true that Aquinas' commentaries can be kind of boring because they, um, the way that they're structured rhetorically, they're not, um, they're not all that exciting. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned, you, you've been mentioning the, uh, the literal sense a lot. So could you walk us through what the, 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 the flip side of that is with the, because uh, we do have, we do believe in a twofold sense. So would you get over that that genus of the of the spiritual sense for us or really the the three spiritual oh yeah oh yeah the spiritual sense the genus yes yeah 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 <laughs> well and so and so there are some really great writers who have um you know written so beautifully on on what the catholic spiritual sense is now it's also there in the catechism of course um Andre, Andre de Bach is is a masterful writer on the spiritual sense um now, now the basic idea is you have um, the typological or allegorical, and you have the moral or the tropological. It's also called the tropological, and then you have the anagogical, or, and that essentially is um, pertaining to the eschatological consummation. So, so the I, I'm never that good at examples of how to. I'm bad at examples because I'm bad at talking. <laughs> But um, you know, giving examples of these of these things, you can do it more easily from from the Old Testament. You know, that's it's it's fairly easy to to um, look in the Old Testament and find um, things that are going to have typological or allegorical use use. You can, um, you know, and the allegory then would be to Christ or the Church. You, you see, so you might um, I don't know um, you could. You could take you could take the Song of Songs and you could read it, um, or you take also you could even take Job, you take the Book of Job and 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 do allegorical readings or typological readings pointing to Christ in the Church, um, of different things that Job says. You, know, you can do that. Um, you can certainly do that with uh, all the prophets and everything else um, with the whole Torah, but. Um, that's the allegorical, the typological, and that's just pointing to Christ in the church. You you read um, it's the way that Paul does. You know, you read the Exodus in light of the in light of the new Exodus. You know, you read the Exodus. All the imagery there um, points to Christ, points to the church, points to the new Exodus. The um, the new Exodus is what you and I are living out right now. Anyway. Um, that that's the typological allegorical. Then there's the the moral sense, or the tropological. And the moral sense is the sense that you often get in homilies, you know, where they they try to bring out they talk about something in scripture and they try to apply it to to your life today, you know, in some in with some meaning, some moral some moral meaning in terms of the virtues, in terms of um, hope, um, in terms of of charity in terms of 
what you know justice prudence um all these things you know in terms of humility you know they take them they make a moral lesson a moral lesson out of something you know you might just be reading something from like first chronicles uh, you know or something like that and and you make a moral lesson and so that's the moral the tropological and then the third the third one is the anagogical and that's some um, you're you're pointing to the eschatological fulfillment to the new jerusalem you know, um, which we have not arrived at yet, but which some of the saints have arrived at and, and the, Our Lady is there. You know, but the New Jerusalem, though, it's not fully consummated even for any of the saints in a way because um, there were the new, new Jerusalem involves the, the restoration of all creation, you know, and the, the, the translucence of everything to the divine um, charity. You know, so the New Jerusalem would be incredibly amazing. Um, but that's what, you know, you're just reading, you read parts from the, Old Testament and you, um, the spiritual sense and draws in and, and takes you up. It takes you up into the, the fullness, you know, of the, of the consummation of the, of the marriage of God and man, you know, and so you can, so the church fathers read that way also. So these, these three ways are what Aquinas generally calls the mystical sense. Now, if you want to understand more about it, though, Henri de Lubac is the great is the great teacher. Henri de Lubac is sort of the, the master. But then there's some there's some popular, some more some easy to read um, books. I'm forgetting which ones. Um, I'm forgetting which ones I should mention. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, you know, like I, I mentioned, how about Aidan Nichols? Read his book, um, Lovely Like Jerusalem. You know, that's a book that came out from Ignatius Press. Um, that kind of summarizes it. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. easy, easy to read. It's good. So you mentioned that um, the idea of, in some cases, the the typology of a passage being in the literal sense. So how does how yeah. does that differ from the allegorical sense itself? Uh, well, you know, it's, um, uh, again, a lot of times when people think about like allegory typology, they're thinking about the Old Testament. Okay, and so. And when you're doing that, it's it's like uh, remember how Saint Paul makes an allegory out of Hagar and Sarah. This is in uh, Galatians, and so remember Hagar symbolizes um, something or other, and Sarah symbolizes something or other. Um, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into what it all symbolizes because that would just that would take too long, <laughs> I think. But but the point is that he make he makes an allegory out of it. The allegory is not present in, in the literal sense of of, um, of Genesis. It's not present in the literal sense of Genesis. Um, what uh, Saint Paul does is he reads that he reads the Genesis passage allegorically, and and of course that wasn't rare. You know, there's other other um, Jews from the same time period, you know, as as Saint Paul who who read in the same way. You know, it's not a it's not rare. It's, this is the, the ancient way of reading scriptures, and um, this was part of the way they read. And it's, it's a good way. It's a true way, you know, especially when it's inspired by God and, and guided by God um, in the Holy Scripture. So um, St. Paul makes allegory out of some Old Testament uh, passages, but it's not there in the literal sense. But now, now, the, now keep in mind, the, um, the, the allegory is present in the literal sense in Galatians. <laughs> Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yes. In Galatians, yes. the literal sense of Galatians contains an allegory. 
the allegory is really present in the literal sense of Galatians. See, that's that's the point. So, so in the New Testament, you'll have um, typolo typological readings, you know, and another would be like Christ is the new Adam. That's a typology, and the typology is like old Adam, new Adam. You know, I mean, old Adam, the first Adam, Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, and and that's the typology. Or um, or you might have like Jerusalem, and then then you would have the Jerusalem in Book of Revelation that comes down from heaven as a bride, you know, and so on. These are these are typologies in the literal sense of the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. So, what is what is the justification behind this uh, this fourfold uh, a way of going about things? Because a Protestant would just respond like, "Well, you can't really read Scripture in this way because you're just equivocating and putting in your own ideas into the biblical text." So, what is the justification behind reading Scripture in this way? Well, the, you know, ultimately, the Protestants of the kind that you're describing. Now, there are many Protestants who don't feel that way. Um, I would name like Peter Lightheart, um, Hans Borsma. Peter Lightheart is very strong Protestant, but he he reads typologically. Uh, he reads all the time. A very strong Protestant um, who thinks typologically, but. Um, I don't know. See the the bottom line, and Richard Hayes. Richard Hayes is the master. So um, Richard Hayes is another amazing Protestant thinker who has a book called Echoes of the of the Scripture in the Gospels. That's his most recent book, and um, really is just amazing. So anyway, um, there are the Protestants who are retrieving this, and the main the reason they are is because if you want to read the Bible like the like the apostles did, if you want to read the Bible like like the Bible itself teaches you to read the Bible. In other words, Jesus himself uh, used typology. You know, the Bible, you know, Paul did. They all did. The Bible teaches you, read the Bible like this. And, and the Bible they had was the Old Testament. You see, the Bible that they had was the Old Testament. But, but Jesus read it this way. Paul read it this way. The Bible teaches you, read the Bible like this. This is how you read the Bible. Now, you read the Bible other ways as well, but this is one of the ways you read the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. So what I I have a book um, where I talk about this, I, and I talk about like what are the biblically warranted ways to understand what biblical doctrine is. In other words, like sometimes the Catholic, the Catholic run into some Protestant who does tell the Catholic that um, your Catholic doctrines are not biblical. You know, they say they say they're not biblical. Your Catholic doctrines are not biblical. But the problem there is like how what are what are the ways that they think are valid for understanding what a biblical doctrine is? What counts as a biblical doctrine? How do you decide? How do you determine what is biblical and what is not biblical? And when you look into it, they say we're going to rule out um, things like typology. Typology is going to be ruled out. On what grounds, though? There's no biblical grounds for ruling out typology as a as a warranted mode of understanding biblical truth. You see, the Bible itself um, uses typology. The biblical authors use typology because they know that it's a warranted mode of understanding biblical truth. Like they read typo typologically, 
they read typologically because that is a way of determining what biblical doctrine is. And so when Protestants say you can't use typology, it's just, it's just arbitrary. It's certainly not from the Bible. The Bible says you can use typology, but the Bible says you only use typology though, you know, within the community, within the, within the liturgical community, you know, within the, within the people of God. And your use of typology is tested by, by the people of God you know, in that way. And so there's other, there's a number of ways that the Bible says that we are, that are biblically warranted ways of understanding what biblical truth is. And it is, in my, in my opinion, um, Protestant thinkers have, have rejected some of these ways, but they have rejected them erroneously because in fact, um, these ways are warranted. They are valid because the Bible says that they are. You know, if you just want to stick from a Protestant perspective, the Bible says they're warranted. And so there's no there's no biblical reason for rejecting them. That Protestants have taken um, Renaissance humanism and, and used that to reject the Bible's own modes of understanding what biblical truth is. So Catholics need to not do that. But, you know, you got to remember that that um, got to remember that uh, in the Bible itself, um, you know, one of the modes, um, you know, the, the whole, the community's interpretation, you know, the, the um, including, including the, the apostles. So think of the Council of Jerusalem, where the Council of Jerusalem involves um, questions that come up about, about how to understand the scriptures um, in light of Christ. You know, like, what should we do about these Gentiles? Like, what, what, how, do, how should we understand the scriptures and the, and our whole, way of understanding who we are in light of these Gentiles. And so they meet in council, a council of the apostles. So a council of the apostles guided by the spirit determines um, what the biblical truth is about this matter. What the truth, by biblical truth, I mean the truth that accords with the scriptures, the truth that accords with Israel's scriptures. That's the truth they were determining. Now, Protestants do not accept councils there, Protestants don't have councils, you know, um, they don't, they don't, um, they don't accept the truth of all the, uh, you know, they have a, a much different view of councils. If, if I were to tell you, if I were to talk to some Protestant interpreters, okay, not all, but some, and I would say, well, the council of, of the council, the seventh ecumenical council, the seventh ecumenical council said this, and they would say, well, that may be so, but that's, you can't tell me what the biblical truth is based on what the Seventh Ecumenical Council says. You, you see, they'd say that we want to know the biblical truth, we got to go to the Bible. We can't, we can't have anything about the Seventh Ecumenical Council to know the biblical truth. And I would say, wait a second, wait a second. I would say, Scripture itself teaches that councils, you know, councils of the, of the uh, apostolic councils of the, of the, um, you know, the, uh, successors, including the successors of the apostles, because Paul talks about that. Um, scripture itself teaches that councils are one of the ways, one of the biblically warranted ways then um, of how we interpret what biblical truth is. What is the truth given of, of the scriptures? What is the truth that's in accordance with the scriptures? You know, and, and of course, um, there's going to be questions that arise that that are not um, that are new questions. 
And so these questions then have to be adjudicated and they have, we have to, we, we seek an answer that's in accord with scripture, in accord with the scriptures, in accord with divine revelation. And so that's what, that's what councils do. That's councils. It's a biblically warranted way of determining biblical truth. And so my, my point is that unfortunately some Protestants have rejected um, this this biblically worn away, and they've, they've rejected it, not because of anything the Bible says, but because essentially, really, the truth is they rejected it because of some Renaissance humanist ideas of what it means to read a text. And the Renaissance humanists were great people, and they were brilliant, and they were great historians. By Renaissance humanists, I remember I'm talking about people in the 15th century and the early 16th century. These were great, great thinkers. And I, I, I myself owe them a lot. Um, and so did Cardinal Catcher's hand, <laughs> but uh, you got to see though that that their the Renaissance humanist mode of reading scripture is not the biblically warranted mode. It's only it takes it's partial. It takes part of it, but not the. It doesn't have. There's many modes that the Bible teaches that we can by which we come to know what biblical truth is, and. And unfortunately, it is true that some Protestants have rejected some of those modes, and then they throw in the faith of, face of Catholics that Catholic doctrine is so-called not biblical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you don't, okay, don't get me started. I don't, I don't like it when Protestants do that. <laughs> okay, thank you. This is this has been really great. Is there anything else you would you? I, I've ran, I've no more questions for you. So, is there anything else you would like to uh, say before we we get this wrapped up? Oh man, I don't know. I think I'm not good at talking. So if I say anything dumb, just ignore it. I mean, I did my best. I did my best to do and do this stuff. I'm grateful to you, Christian, for having me having me on just to talk about things that that um, both of us love. Okay, thank you, thank you. So uh, everybody out there, in about ten minutes, I'll be on with Father Brian Daly. We'll be talking about Leonetius of Byzantium and his life and his uh, teaching about Christology. But that's all we have uh, for you right now. Thank you, Dr. Levering. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you have a book on on this topic, too. Right. Um, you know, yeah, I, I got a, a couple. I mean, with Michael Duffin, I just read a book called Wisdom of the Word. And then I do have a book um, that's called. Um, what is it called? It's like it's on. Um, it's on the reference, it's responding to it. Dog and I forget the name. Then I have a book called Participatory Biblical Exegesis. Um, I have a book on scripture called Holy People, Holy Land. Anyway, I'd love to, I'd love to write about this stuff. Oh yeah. The book is called, the other book is called Was the Reformation a Mistake? Why Catholic Doctrine is Not Unbiblical. Anyway, anyway, so I do, I do love to write about this kind of stuff. So, so thank you so much, um, for having me on for sure. Yep. I'll put all the descriptions to those books in the, in the description below if any of you are, are interested. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta get those royalties up, right? <laughs> oh man, no uh, pennies, man, pennies is. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm not, serious. it's not the life, it's not the life of riches. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay, so thank you for being on, and I will talk to all of you uh, in about ten minutes. Thank you, Doctor Levering. Thank you, thank you, wonderful.